Have you ever noticed that things can go from great to bad really quickly? I remember when I was 18, I was working at a church, and I was driving home after a really long but really great day. We had some big events, and a lot of people were really encouraged, and I'm driving home. It starts to rain, and I see an animal in the road, and I'm thinking I'm driving pretty slow, and there's a big shoulder on the road, and so I just start to veer my car a little bit off into the shoulder. I hit a slick spot. My car starts spinning, hits the guardrail on the other side of the road, keeps spinning, hits the guardrail on the first side of the road, keeps spinning, and I end up back uh, on the other side of the road facing the opposite direction. Things went from really great to really bad really, really quickly. And today in our passage in Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be thinking about the judgment of Christ, the coming judgment when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And the picture that Revelation 14 paints for us is a lot of things that look like they're going really great and look like they're strong and firm and established and immovable, but things go from really great to really bad really quickly. And so the main point I want you to take home from all of that today is that Christ will return to crush his enemies and give unending rest to his people. Christ will return to crush his enemies and give unending rest to his people. We're going to see that main point unfold in four messages that come from heaven in Revelation chapter 14. So we'll have four points this morning, each of which will cover one of those four messages And they'll all give us this picture of how Christ will return to crush his enemies and give his people unending rest. So before we dive in, I want to read for you Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. And then we will jump in and unpacking them together. And as we read, I want you to listen for those four messages, those four turning points where four, three different angels and one voice from heaven declare the truth about Christ's coming judgment. So Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel followed saying, It is fallen! Babylon the great has fallen! She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality which brings wrath. And another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commandments and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. 
so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Let's pray together one more time over our time together. Lord, we thank you for the Bible and we thank you for Revelation chapter 14. And I pray that you would fill us up with hope in light of your coming judgment, in light of your coming return to give rest to all of your people. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Four messages from heaven. The first one comes from an an angel declaring that Christ has come, but judgment is coming. Christ has come, but judgment is coming. Christ came once to offer salvation, but that salvation is a limited time offer. So first, Christ has come in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So what is the gospel that this angel is talking about, the gospel that this angel is proclaiming. We don't have to guess. The Bible defines that word for us. And one of the most clear passages that defines that word gospel is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the Apostle Paul reminding the Corinthians of the definition of gospel. And here's what he said. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." So the gospel is the story of Christ. It's the story that he came to live a perfect life. It's the story that he came and he died on a cross for our sins. It's the story that that death on the cross was according to the scriptures, meaning that for thousands of years, God's people were anticipating this Savior who would come to give of himself. The gospel is the story that Christ died and he was buried. That death was real and it was undeniable but it was not undefeatable because the Christ who died is the Christ who was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead. He is our king. He is glorious. He is mighty. He is our savior. He is Good. That's the gospel. And Paul says that this gospel isn't just historical fact. It's fact that has very potent present implications for your life. It's a gospel that the Corinthians were to receive and to stand in. It's a gospel that would save them. Because in the gospel we see an offer. If Christ died for our sins... That means that the gospel offers the solution for our most serious and pressing problems in our life. That we are sinners who have rebelled against God. And that Christ came to offer forgiveness and to purchase it at the price of his very own blood. And who is this gospel for? Look again at verse 6. The angel flies high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So who is the gospel for? The gospel is for all nations. 
Christ is worthy of worship from people that look like me and people that don't look like me. Christ is worthy of worship in English, and he's worthy of worship in every other language under the sun. And unfortunately today, there's many millions of people who've never heard the name of Christ in their own language. There's many nations, many tribes, languages, and people that have never heard this eternal gospel. For example, the Imok people. There's 2.1 million Imok people speaking the Imok language. They're spread all throughout the Middle East today. And this is, this is a real person. He's alive on the other side of the world. And he will live, and he will die, and he will face the judgment of God, and he will never hear the name of Christ unless someone goes and tells him about it. The gospel is for all nations, and it's an urgent need. And that's why we gave to Iceland in December, and why we continually give to Iceland and to other missionaries through our giving to the church. When you give to the church, we're not stockpiling things up. We're trying to give those resources away as generously as possible, especially for the spread of the gospel among places like Iceland or among the IMOC. Because no one has ever praised the name of Jesus in the IMOC language. So we have to give generously to make sure that happens. And what's happening in Iceland, for example, is students are coming to university in Iceland from all over the world, people that have never even heard of Jesus, and and missionaries like Logan and Carla get to proclaim the good news, the eternal gospel to them, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What's going on in Iceland is great and phenomenal, and it's so amazing that we get to support it, but there is more work to be done. This eternal gospel never stops being true because it's an eternal gospel. But the offer of the eternal gospel is not always available. Christ has come, but judgment is coming. The angel continues in verse 7. He spoke with a loud voice. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so this first angel proclaims a message that God is the creator of everything. And as a result of that, he's worthy of all of our worship. You were created not for your own good, not for your own benefit, not for your own glory, but for the glory of the God who created you. So we have to lay our lives down in worship of the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, all of it created for his glory, including us. And this God is returning to judge those who do not fear him, who do not worship him, who live for their own glory instead of his. There will be a day when all will be held accountable for how they've responded to this creator, God. My day job is in marketing. And when, when you put together a marketing campaign or a fundraising campaign, one of the most important things to do is figure out a way to create urgency. 
You know, there's only three days left to get this discount. There's only one week left to multiply your impact or, or, you know, however you want to say it. There's urgency in this offer because the day of judgment is coming. The gospel will never stop being true, but the offer of the gospel will not always be available. There is only one way of escape from that judgment, and it's in Christ who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So Christ is our only hope. So trust in him. Stop believing that your goodness could ever be good enough to make up for your bad. We need, we need not to be better. We need a savior who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, and rose again for our justification. Christ is the world's only hope, so trust in him. And Christ is the world's only hope, so share him. We, we get to share this eternal gospel, something that's always been true from before the foundations of the world. We're stepping into something that is monumental and historic and centuries upon centuries upon centuries, old, older than you could ever imagine because it's older than time itself. We're stepping into a movement like that. We're proclaiming this good news. And we get to do that to the people in our own lives and to the people among all nations. Christ is the world's only hope, so share him. Maybe you're thinking that you want to be active in sharing him and you don't know how. Well, a great first step would be to go to Gospel and Grub this afternoon and to, to, to hit the street and share God's word. And if you're not able to do it today for whatever reason, then make a plan to do it next month. Look for the date coming in the next few weeks. Christ is the world's only hope, so share him. Christ has come, but judgment is coming. And the messages don't stop there. Another angel comes with another message, and that message is, the world is great, but it will be gone. The world sinful authorities and systems that are in rebellion against God and hostile to his word and hostile to his ways. The world seems mighty and powerful and immovable now, but it will be defeated. Read verse 8 with me. And another, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen! Babylon the Great has fallen! She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And so this angel proclaims a message about Babylon the Great falling. When we say that Babylon is great or that the world is great, we don't mean that it's great in terms of quality or contribution to the world. We mean it's great in terms of size, in terms of strength, in terms of magnitude. And so John and this angel look at Babylon and they say, that's mighty, that's immovable, that's never going to fall. What do we mean by Babylon? The book of Revelation is built on the foundation of the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel. And in Daniel, you might know a story about something with a lion's den and something about a furnace. Uh, but the book of Daniel is about the Israelites, God's people, being exiled to a foreign nation, the Babylonian Empire. 
And that was a foreign empire that was hostile to God and hostile to his ways, so hostile that people were thrown into furnaces and tossed to lions. And the book of Daniel is an encouragement for God's people to stand firm, to endure even in the midst of those kinds of trials and that kind of hostility. But Daniel and his friends were living in the midst of a mighty Babylonian empire that had conquered most of the known world, including their homeland. Everything that they had ever known and seen was conquered and owned by Babylon. That's mighty. Hundreds of years later, John, writing the book of Revelation, lived in another empire that was hostile to God and hostile to its ways, the Roman Empire. John himself wrote the book of Revelation while in exile on the island of Patmos. And you know why John was exiled to the island of Patmos? It's because they tried everything they could possibly imagine to torture and silence and even kill John, and none of it worked because God wasn't done with him yet. John, tradition tells us John was boiled alive in an effort to silence his message, the eternal gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that Caesar isn't Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And so John looked at the mighty Roman Empire, the empire that had the power to take away everything that he held dear except for his Savior, the empire that had the power to take his life and throw it across the ocean to a tiny island, Patmos, where he's stuck scrounging for food and, and wondering where his next meal is going to come from and if he'll ever be home again, ever see his church family again, ever see his family again. John looked at Babylon the Roman Empire, and he said, it is great, and it is mighty, and it's, it's powerful. And in our context, we're surrounded by Babylon as well. I don't think any of us run the risk of being boiled alive after gospel and grub today, but I do think that there are many people and systems and societies around us that are hostile to God and hostile to his ways. We, we, we live with neighbors who think we're bigoted for holding views that come from God's word. We live in the midst of a neighborhood that is often indifferent to the eternal gospel that's always been true and always been beautiful. We live in Babylon. There are many around us who are hostile to God. Babylon is great, and Babylon is also very persuasive. Look at the second half of verse 8. She made all the nations... All the world, its influence is unparalleled. All the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. In marriage, sexual immorality is being unfaithful to your spouse. In the book of Revelation, sexual immorality is a common image used to refer to unfaithfulness to God, spiritual adultery. And Babylon is out there encouraging all the world to take part in this unfaithfulness to God. And the message is so persuasive and intoxicating and enticing that it's like drinking some sweet wine. It's a wine of sexual immorality. It's a promise that you could live your best life now, and that you could take the world by storm, and that you could make a difference, and that you could feel good about yourself, and you could feel comfortable, and you can do whatever you want, you can be whatever you want. It's a message that sounds so enticing, but it is a lie. 
It's a lie. It's an empty promise. I could promise you $5 billion today. I'm never going to be able to give it to you. I'm never going to have it. And the world is promising joy to you that it will never be able to deliver. It will never be able to deliver. We're often invited to, to take part in pleasant, present pleasure without regard for the future consequences. Sexual immorality is a great example that Revelation even gives for us right here, where we only think about what we want in the present without any thought about the future consequences that we'll face, that our current or future marriage might face, or that the people that we are sinning against and sinning with will face. When we refuse to serve someone, we're looking after our present pleasure without regard to the future consequence of not being known as a loving person. When we cheat or take shortcuts at work, we're looking for the present pleasure of a quick fix without regard for the future consequence of a a loss of integrity. And of course, all of those are minor, minor future consequences because the wine of her sexual immorality, verse says, brings wrath. The worst consequence is the wrath of God which will come against Babylon and all who have drank her wine. The world is lying to you. The world is saying, come and drink the wine. It's sweet and it's good and it's harmless, and it's good in appearance, and it'll make you feel great, and it's a lie. Don't settle. Before I was a Christian, I was, I was obsessed with pirating movies. I didn't even watch them most of the time. I just had to have them. I don't, I don't know why. You can wonder about that later. When the, when the movie Avatar came out, I had to have Avatar, because everybody's talking about it. And so I download illicitly the movie Avatar. If you've ever seen the movie Avatar, most of the movie takes place in some made-up language. And the version that I downloaded didn't have subtitles. And so I'm watching Avatar on like a little iPod video back in the day. The whole situation is silly. It doesn't even have subtitles. I have no idea what's going on. And I'm just sitting there wondering, man, why are so many people going to see this movie? And the thing is, I settled for a cheap counterfeit instead of actually working for what was worth having. And that's what we do when we live for the world and drink the wine of its sexual morality. The world is not able to deliver on its promise because the world will not last forever. The world is great, but it will be gone. The world is great, but it will be gone. Look at what it says about Babylon the great, Babylon the mighty, Babylon the wonderful, Babylon who's got so many great promises to give you. It has fallen. The world is great, but it will be gone. And every authority and every culture and every individual and every, every cultural norm that is hostile to God and hostile to his ways will be fallen. It will all be destroyed. It will all become a distant memory one day. Don't look to the world to save you. Don't look to the, pleasant, the present pleasures of this world to save you. 
And I don't think there's anyone in this room, I know most of you very well, I don't think there's anyone in this room will say, yeah, you know, my money will probably get me out of hell one day. I don't think any of you think that today. But how many of us are tempted to think, even if our money won't get us out of hell, it might get us out of trouble tomorrow. Our trust isn't in Christ, our trust is in our money. We don't think that being approved by our neighbors that don't know Christ will get us out of hell. Like, oh, no, that guy can vouch for me, Jesus, I promise. We don't really believe that, but we do believe that we need their approval to be happy. And that's often what stops us from sharing the eternal gospel at our workplace or in our neighborhood or with our family. We're, we're believing the lie that the world can save us. We're believing the lie that Babylon's wine is really worth having. So what worldly treasures, what worldly comforts from Babylon are you holding on to with a tight fist because you believe you need them to be happy or safe? They're all a fading, fading pleasure. So don't look to the world to save you and don't look to the world to satisfy you. It's going to be destroyed. Don't live your life collecting pleasures on this earth because Babylon will be fallen. It's all going to be destroyed. The world is great, but it will be gone. God will destroy all of the systems and cultures of Babylon, the cultural forces hostile to him and hostile to his ways. But what happens to those who drink the wine? What happens to those who remain intoxicated? Our third message from the third angel. Sin seems sweet, but judgment is severe. A life of rebelling against God seems enjoyable and easy now. Like, yeah, drinking wine with Babylon, woo, it's great. But the eternal consequences are coming soon. So hear the message of the third angel, Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Lots of confusing images there in verse 9. If you're not sure what's going on, go back and listen to Jared's sermon from last week. He covered all of those images very well. Uh, For now, just know that these are the people who are allied with Babylon, who are hostile to God, who have rejected the eternal gospel. They worship the beast, not the king. They worship its image, not the Lord. They receive a mark on their forehead or on their hand because they're marked by the world instead of being marked and covered by the blood of Christ. And what will come of those people who are against God, the people who are living in sin? Verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. In verse 8, the world is drinking the wine of Babylon, and here in verse 10, they're drinking the wine of God's wrath. Drink Babylon all you want, but punishment is coming. Judgment is 
coming. The wine that seems so sweet right now will one day be an empty cup, and that empty cup will be filled with the bitter wrath of God's judgment. There is a bitter wine that is coming for all who drink the wine of Babylon. And just notice here that there's an exchange being made here. There's a trade being made here. People choose to worship the beast. People choose to live for Babylon. People choose to reject the eternal gospel. And as a result, they will be punished. It's an exchange that people make. And and listen to what it says in verses 10 to 12 about this judgment. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast or its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Revelation 14 paints a picture of a judgment that is ongoing and eternal. We're looking at ongoing conscious torment. There is not a break to catch your breath or get a drink of water because the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and there is no rest day or night. There is no rest, day or night. There is no break. It's not, let me just just get over this last hill and then I'll have a little smooth stretch. There is no smooth stretch. It's ongoing and it is conscious and it is torment. And it happens in verse 10 in the sight of the Lamb. We'll get more into this as we come to the home stretch of the book of Revelation, where we actually see Satan cast into hell. But Satan is not the king of hell, as many people believe. Satan himself is judged in hell. The king of hell is Jesus Christ, who is the king of all creation. And, and, and this torment is happening in the sight of the Lamb. He stands watching with pity and wrath at those who have drank the wine of Babylon and now for the rest of forever will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is how it has to be. A holy God cannot tolerate sinners. It's contrary to his nature. If you got food poisoning, it wouldn't matter how hard you tried to keep it in your system. It would have to be expelled. A holy God cannot be near sinners. No matter how hard you try to force it and make it work, it will not work. They must be expelled. This is how it has to be. A good king cannot allow rebels to stand. Imagine if the secretary of state committed a gross act of treason today. Do you think he could walk into the Oval Office tomorrow? No, he's an enemy of the state. He can't come in. 
He can't be near the king. He can't be near the ruler. He's a rebel. Why would he be allowed in the king's court? He doesn't get to approach the kingdom. He lives for a different kingdom. He lives for Babylon. He needs to be cast out. This is how it has to be. A good king cannot allow rebels to live in his presence. And we're all fans of justice, right? We want wrongdoers to be punished, especially when the wrongdoers are wronging us. But ideas like justice get really hard when we think about God's justice coming against us or coming against people that we know. And I'll just say that God's judgment is unavoidable because his character is holy and unchanging. So two exhortations in light of this. Number one, don't sin. Count the cost. Sin is not worth it. My brothers and my sisters, don't settle for the empty wine of Babylon. Don't sin and do endure. Look where the angel applies his own message in verse 12. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Sin will never be worth it, but following Jesus always is. Following Jesus is like walking on a narrow road with lots of twists and turns and thorns along the way. And drinking the wine of Babylon looks like a wide, easy, smooth road, but it only leads to death. Sin will never be worth it. But trusting in Jesus and following in Jesus, even though it's really, really hard, will be worth it. But this eternal death is not for everyone. Death is inevitable, but defeat is impossible. God's people will all die, often at the hands of God's enemies. But they have eternal life with them. And that eternal life, contrary to the eternal death, verses 9 through 12, is rest with God forever. After these three angels proclaim their message, they're followed up with an exclamation point, a voice from heaven proclaiming. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Notice the, the, the comparisons here. In verses 9 through 12, we hear a message about eternal death. And in verse 13, we hear a message about eternal life. In, in verse 10, we hear a message about no rest. And in verse 13, we hear a message about resting from our labors forever. And this beautiful exclamation point at the end of this vision in Revelation chapter 14 is, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Now that sounds like an oxymoron. Blessed are the dead. Well, the Bible's full of oxymorons like that. The, one of Jesus' most famous sermons started out, Blessed are the poor. 
Because God views the world so much radically different than the tiny, tiny wines of Babylon. He's promising something better. Because the people who are poor in this world have riches in the kingdom of heaven. The people who are dead in the Lord rise up to eternal life. Blessed are the dead. Blessed are the dead. And then it's even repeated. You know, there's this voice, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then the Spirit of God just rises up, gets out of his seat and says, yes, it's true, it's true, it's true. So they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. It sounds like an oxymoron, but that's the upside-down nature of what Christ is calling you to believe. He's not calling you to settle for the tiny wine of Babylon. He's calling you to believe, blessed are the dead, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who lay their lives down to follow him. But what about all of our sin? If every time we drink the wine of God's, uh, the wine of Babylon, the wine of God's wrath is being poured into the cup of his anger, as verse, verse 10 clearly says, what happens to all of the wine. God's not just going to knock the cup over and pretend like it's no big deal. He couldn't do that. He's just. He can't tolerate sinners. A holy king can't live near rebels. He can't just ignore it. In John chapter 18, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, also wrote a biography of Jesus, the gospel according to John. And in John chapter 18, the night before Jesus died, Roman soldiers, Babylon, comes after him. And one of those soldiers takes up a sword. One of Jesus' disciples grabs a sword and lops off one of the soldier's ears. And he's like, no, 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 Jesus, we're not going to do this. Jesus says, no, blessed are the dead. John 18.10, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me the cup of God's wrath. Christians are not saved because they don't have sin. We don't have this eternal life because we've earned it. We don't have this eternal life because we haven't earned eternal death. Christians aren't saved because they don't have sin. Christians are saved because Christ himself drank the wine of God's wrath and he drank it down to the dregs, and he did it for you. Christ himself was crushed so that you will never be crushed. And as a result, death has completely lost its sting. So we can say, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Friends, you will live forever. If you are in Christ, you will live forever. The judgment is not hanging over you anymore because the cup of God's wrath has been emptied. You will live forever. So what have you got to lose? Lay your life down to proclaim this eternal gospel. Here in D.C., and around the world. That car accident when I was 18, when things went from great to bad really quickly, 
After my car spun around a couple times, I find myself sitting in a car. If you've ever been in a car accident, you, you know the smells of the airbags just hit you, and they almost make you more sick than the spinning did. And the only thing that I can think about is I can't find my glasses. I don't know where my glasses are. I can't see. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't have my glasses at home. I, I don't know how I'm going to get home without my glasses. And I'm scrounging around the car looking for my glasses. It's dark. It's rainy. I can't find them. Somebody comes up and knocks on my window. And he says, you got to get out of your car. And I told him, I can't, I can't find my glasses. And he said, you've got bigger problems. Your car is smoking. It's going to blow up. You've got to get out of it right now. So I jumped out of the car. That guy was looking to save a life. Didn't matter what I thought I needed. What I needed was somebody to tell me, get out of the car. The world is perishing, and we have the eternal gospel to proclaim. We can proclaim it in D.C. as we go out and share our faith. We can proclaim it to the ends of the earth as we pray boldly for our missionaries like Logan and Carla in Iceland, as we give generously to the work of our church. And some of you are even called to recognize that you have eternal life. Blessed are the dead. Lay your life down to go, to cross cultures, to share this eternal gospel to the ends of the earth. We're not going to just send you tomorrow. We're going to train you. We're going to equip you. We're going to support you. We're going to be with you every step of the way. But I believe that there's people in this room who are called to do that, who are called to rescue a perishing world by proclaiming the eternal gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ will come to crush his enemies, but he will give unending rest to his people. Church, you will never die. So lay your life down to worship him forever.